0: The children are dismissed to the musical practice. The rest of you would be so good as to open your Bibles to the 103rd Psalm. The 103rd Psalm. The fourth book of Psalms goes from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. And our study of the fourth book will end next week with Psalm 106. But today. We'll read Psalm 103. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 103. Of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity In steadfast love, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, you you mighty ones who do his word. Obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, all his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord God, it is our desire that you would work in our hearts so that we would praise you and bless you and delight in you, that we would not... Forget your benefits, Lord. Now as we turn to your word, give us eyes to see. Glorify yourself in our midst. Establish your word as that which causes fear for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Hundred and third Psalm. What a wonderful Psalm this is. Such vivid imagery and metaphor, the Lord's goodness towards us. And yet, I I think you may miss the point of this psalm, if you're not careful to think about it. If you've been coming these last few weeks, you've, you've heard Psalm 95, Psalm 91, Psalm 100. Bless the Lord, praise the Lord. Pastor Daniel and I, in the previous weeks, have emphasized just how important it is, what a foundational piece of Christian worship it is, to delight in the Lord, to be satisfied in the Lord, for our affections to engage with the Lord. The Lord does not want doers first and foremost. He wants worshipers. He wants people who are passionate about him. And, and that can sometimes be discouraging if that's not the state of your heart. And in the previous few weeks, we've suggested that one way to affect that change, one thing you can do is, is call upon God, as Moses does in Psalm 90, saying, Lord, satisfy us with your steadfast love in the morning. You can ask God to work in your heart to create a love for him, to create a satisfaction in him, a hunger for him. God can do that work. But look at this psalm, and before you think, oh, great, here's another one of those mountaintop psalms of, of exuberant joy where the psalmist is just bubbling over with praise. I can't relate to that. Before you, before you think that, look, look carefully at, at, at the first stanza. What is David doing? Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to himself. He's counseling himself. First and foremost, he's not speaking to you or me. He's speaking to his soul. And what he's speaking to his soul is this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So what does that mean? When would a person need to tell themselves, to tell their soul, soul, bless the Lord, soul, don't forget the Lord. Precisely because David's heart wasn't where it should be, precisely because his soul wasn't in a state of exuberant satisfaction in the Lord is why he does this. So here then is a second instruction, a second way to to work on your heart. If, If you're here today and you, like me, have days, weeks, where... The affections and the emotions spoken in psalms like this seem far removed. Here's another thing you can do. You can speak truth to yourself. You can have a conversation with yourself like David does. This this is a psalm evidencing that David was not always in some spiritual status of ecstasy in delighting in God. David needed, just like we do, to cultivate his own heart, to, to shape his heart. Now, you can't reach inside your heart and just flip switches i can't make myself like tomatoes for example um sorry deb can't i know but i can't i mean i can deal with them in certain formats but just taking a bite out of a tomato no way i cannot flip that switch now there are some people who love that they hunger for that a tomato would satisfy them not me I can't flip that switch. There are certain styles of music that you could try to learn to like, but you just can't flip a switch and start liking. And so it is with God and sin and righteousness, and and we're born loving the darkness, born loving sin, and and we are no more free to start loving God, no more free to start loving what is alien to us as the leopard is change changes spots. At least that's the language of scripture. And so what you can do is you can call upon God to change your heart and change what you love and change your desires. We've seen that. The other thing you can do is you can speak to yourself. You can counsel yourself. You can lead your heart. You can't, don't follow your heart, but you can lead your heart. And you can counsel your heart. And so here we have David doing that. Evidence is that this great man of faith had bad days. And this is the counsel to his heart. That's why the title here, How to Cultivate a Worshipful Heart. How, how do you get a heart that, that rings the notes that this psalm and the previous psalms have rung? Well, we saw in Psalm 90, you, you call on God, Oh God, would you change my heart? Would you cause me to be satisfied with you? Would you cause it to be enough that you love me? And here, counsel to yourself. We're going to look at this in three points. Verses 1 to 5 is a personal call to bless the Lord. A personal call to bless the Lord. We've seen that already. David speaking to his soul, his innermost being. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David is is speaking to himself. I just just want to observe three things here in these first five verses. The first is that David understands, and, and we need to understand, that true worship involves our entire being. True worship involves our entire being. David's heart isn't where it needs to be, and David does not go on and just say, well, that's okay. My emotions, my heart isn't engaged. I can worship God anyway. Rather, David begins to counsel his heart. I, it, it is insufficient. It is unacceptable that my heart is not passionate about God, so I will take steps to change that. Look at how he uses the language. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. David wants his, the totality of his being worship the lord one thinks of deuteronomy 6 4 to 5 hero israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your might jesus of course quoting this as the greatest commandment in matthew 22 37 saying you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and all your might and other passages add in strength and the point is the totality of your being the totality of your being. True worship, it has been said, is the response of my whole being to God's whole being, the response of all of me to all of him. And and David understands that. And so there are days you don't wake up, pop out of bed, bless the Lord, that's okay. David clearly has days like that. The question is, what do you do when you realize that your heart isn't where it should be? What do you do when you realize your affections to the Lord are waning or dulling? Your first love is dimming. You can go on with a sort of stoic, stiff upper lip Christianity that thinks emotions and passion is is irrelevant. I'm just going to do my bit. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to check my boxes. And you can walk down the road to Pharisaism. Or you can, well, I suppose there's three options. Or you can fake it There are people who fake it, and just every time you see them, bless the Lord. And some people, that's where they're at. But I know people who that's sort of a conditioned response. And the thought is to to admit to discouragement, to admit to questions, doubts, is somehow letting the team down. I hope, as you've been reading the Psalms, you know that that's not the right answer. The psalmists have no problem laying out their doubts, their discouragements, their anguish. But they deal with it. They take it to the Lord. They do something with it. And so the proper response is to say, Lord, my heart isn't where it should be. Lord, would you change my heart? Would you satisfy me? And then begin to speak truth to yourself. Begin to speak truth to yourself. Notice, notice the superlatives here. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Forget not all his benefits. Verse 3, "Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. David's after the totality of himself. And what's really interesting here, point B is that we then need to learn to be an energetic preacher to yourself. Learn to be an energetic preacher to yourself. Understand this. God has called everyone here to preach. He has. Men, women, children, he has. He absolutely has. Preach, proclaim, announce, herald truth, which is exactly what David is doing to an audience of one, to himself. And if you want to maintain your Christian walk, you have got to learn to speak truth to yourself. You've got to learn to preach and not just boring sermons, but exciting sermons. Look, look at, look at the way David is speaking to his soul. This is more than simply John three sixteen. God so loved the world, soul. God loves the world. No, this is emphatic. This is passionate. This is ordered. Soul. You can sort of. I don't. Maybe if you're to do this, try to don't let anyone see you doing this. It would look weird. But you get off in your prayer closet. Soul. Soul, bless the Lord, soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Soul, don't forget his benefits, soul. And then he begins to recount them. What benefits? Who forgives all your iniquities, soul? Soul, who is it that forgave your iniquities, soul? The Lord. So he forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Now, i pause there. Some teachers have taken this, again, to back up the claim that Christians have a right and a birthright to the healing of all sickness and illness, but I am greatly indebted to Daniel Moore, whose Hebrew is much better than mine, that that can't be what that means. The you, just want you to track the yous in verses um, 1 to 5. The yous he's speaking to are his soul. The Hebrew is even more emphatic. The, uh, the number and the gender of the word agrees with soul. It has to be the you, has to be a soul. And so the diseases that are healed are diseases of the soul, not physical ailments. These, these are diseases of the soul, soul sicknesses, or what's going on here, a season of apathy, a season of spiritual malaise. The Lord heals that too. Who redeems your life from the pit soul? Soul, who is it? who you were headed to judgment and wrath and fire and damnation, and he redeemed you, he picked you out of the pit, and he set your feet on a solid rock, and he put a new song in your mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, using the language of Psalm 40. Who who did that soul? The Lord did that soul. Who crowns you as steadfast love and mercy? Now that word for steadfast love in verse 4. First appearance. It will show up five times in this psalm. And again, that is God's covenant love, his gospel love, his love that is peculiar to his people who know him by faith. Soul, you've been crowned with gospel love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. And again, he's talking to his soul. This isn't a promise of physical vitality, but rather spiritual vitality. If if you remember the days when you were passionately on fire for the Lord, if you remember those days where you loved to read your Bible and you remember those days where you loved to share your faith, the Lord can renew that in you. You can renew your soul like the eagles. You think of the eagle as this picture of strength and vitality soaring where it pleases above all the other birds This is what the Lord can do. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. This is how David preaches to himself. This is the counsel he needs, which brings us to our third point. You you gotta fight hard to never stop being amazed by grace. You see, the biggest problem facing in our Christian life is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Most of, if you've been a Christian, if you are a Christian, most of what you need to know, you already know. But every day we forget. Every day our heart starts spinning the truth. Our heart starts causing us to forget things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once famously said that the power of sin is rarely the power to cause God's children to raise their fist at God and curse him. The power of sin most often is the power to cause us to forget, to get distracted, things to get off our radar. And so David tells himself to remember these things. This is, this is from, from Genesis to Revelation, a theme of scripture. This is why we need to gather together. This is why reading your Bible every day is so important. This is why Christian fellowship is so important because I'm gonna forget truth and I need you to speak it to me and you need me to speak it to you and at times I need to speak it to myself. L- listen to Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 18, this warning as Israel is about to take possession of the land. Take care and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and by my might of my hand have I gotten this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. What's the warning? Watch out, Israel. You're going to enter the land, and the Lord's going to bless you, and you're going to have money, and you're going to have food, and you're going to have homes, and you're going to have prosperity, and then you're going to think you did it and forget God. And so you got to remind yourself. you got to remind yourself. This world will draw our hearts away and our hearts will get more excited about the upcoming game, more excited about some new movie coming out, more excited about some activity or trip than we are about the living God. And when that happens, we're forgetting him. And when that happens, like David, we got to say, soul, remember, soul, don't forget. You must never cease being amazed by grace. At the other end of the Bible, 2 Peter 1, Peter tells them why he's writing. Greg quoted this a little later in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, but I'll just read why he did he write this epistle. He writes, 2 Peter 1, 12 to 13, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though as you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it's right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter's saying, I know you know this stuff that I'm saying. I know I'm not saying anything new. But while I have breath in my bones, while I have life in my body, I think it's good to stir you up. You see that? To stir you up by way of reminder. And every day, we need to stir our hearts up by way of reminder. Every day, I need people in this congregation to stir me up by way of reminder. And every day, I need to be looking to stir other people up by way of reminder so we can announce and speak truth to ourselves. That, that's... That's the key to maintaining your spiritual walk. And if you aren't doing this, don't be surprised if your heart slowly grows cold. If your heart is cold, here, here is part of the cure. Call upon God, as Moses does in Psalm 90, to, to satisfy us and begin counseling and speaking truth to yourself and surround yourself with people who will speak truth to you so that you won't forget, so that you can be stirred up by way of reminder. David then moves from a personal call. And I really think throughout this entire psalm, he is speaking to himself. Because if you look at the end in verse 22, how does it end? It ends just as it began. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So I don't think he's ever stopped speaking to himself. I just think he now begins to enlarge his audience. So he's still speaking to his soul, and now we have a corporate Call to bless the Lord. Verses 6 to 18, a corporate call to bless the Lord. Notice in verse 10, the us. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Verse 12, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Verse 14, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. So now David is expanding the scope of who he's addressing. He starts off addressing himself, his innermost being, and now there's an us which in David's context is Israel. And for us, it's, it's the redeemed of the Lord. It's God's people. And so now this psalm broadens out to a corporate call to bless the Lord, and it begins by looking backwards, by remembering past grace. The whole point of this psalm is to stir up David's soul, to stir up Israel in the worship of the Lord. And so it starts by looking back at past grace Remembered. Remembering past grace. The Lord, verse 6, works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts, the people of Israel. And what he's speaking of here is the exodus from Egypt. The oppressed people of Israel were slaves in bondage. The Lord worked righteousness and justice for them. And he delivered them and he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. And you can go and read Exodus 3 to 14 and read that powerful and amazing account of salvation. See, prior to the cross, prior to the New Testament, the Exodus from Egypt is the um, standard place the Old Testament writers look back to to look to a picture of salvation. And it lines up pretty well, but this is what they go back to again and again. We were slaves and we were helpless. And the Lord heard our cry, and he came, and he sent a deliverer. And through mighty power and awesome wonders, he, he made a way where there seemed to be no way. And he delivered his people, and he destroyed their enemies. And he, and he brought them into relationship with him at Sinai of sonship, where Israel becomes God's son. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And, and he looks back to that. You know, we could, as people on this side of the cross, look back to the cross And that ties in. I mean, how is it that the Lord forgives our iniquity? Well, through the death of Jesus on the cross. How is it that he heals our spiritual sicknesses? Through the death of Jesus on the cross. How did he redeem our lives from the pit? Well, through the death of the Son of God for us on the cross. With what does he crown our lives with steadfast love? Well, we sang it already. Hallelujah, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. What is my glory? What is my boast? What is my treasure? My crown? God's steadfast love shown to me through his son on the cross. And with what am I satisfied? And with what is my strength renewed? What the son of God crucified for me on a cross. So he looks back, and we can look back. We can look back to the cross. You can look back to Egypt. You can look back to so many the Lord's wonderful deeds in history past and that then sets up the next step, the Lord's forgiveness at Sinai after delivering the people leading them out of Egypt he brings them to Mount Sinai and we were here last week looking at Exodus 32 and 34 and if you remember what happens is Moses goes up on the mountain that the people are afraid to touch there's lightning and there's shaking and quaking and the people say uh uh-uh, uh we don't want to We don't want to go anywhere near that God, Moses. You go talk to him. Moses goes up for 40 days and for 40 nights. And the people, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. The people within those 40-day span say, we don't know what happened to Moses, so Aaron, would you make us some gods to worship? You don't think there's a terrible, terrible power to forgetfulness? And then you're reading that, and you think, are you guys crazy? You just got delivered from Egypt, and the water parted, and the enemies got destroyed, and this mountain was shaking and quaking. And if you read that and think, man, those Israelites are a bunch of doofuses, you miss the whole point, because they're us. They're us. There's no temptation which has overtaken us, which is not common to man. If anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest He falls. No, we do the same thing. You don't think that sin can make you forget and lead you astray even after a recent spiritual high? Of course it can. And so the people make a golden calf. And what's God's initial response? He tells Moses, I'm wiping them out. I will destroy them. And I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes for the people. And wonder of wonders, the Lord relents. There is some judgment. The Levites strike down some of their countrymen. But the total annihilation of Israel, it is put on hold, canceled. And so that is what is being looked to. And and what comes out of that judgment is the most amazing thing of all. Where there should have been death and destruction, where there should have been an annihilation of a nation, a genocide, what comes out of that is actually up to that point in redemptive history, the greatest revelation of who God is and his grace and love. Because Moses calls out to God, show me your glory. I don't want to go a step further until you show me your glory. And the Lord responds and he says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass by you. And he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. That's the context of of Moses being hid in the cleft of the rock. There should have been a genocide. There should have been annihilation. And instead, there's this gracious unfolding, revealing of who God is. And Exodus 34, 6 to 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who I know will by no means clear the guilty. This this passage in Psalm 103 directly quotes that in verse 8. Verse eight of, of Psalm one hundred and three directly quotes Exodus thirty four six: "The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love." God, God showed Israel past grace, delivering from Egypt, and He showed them grace when instead of killing them, He revealed Himself to them even more. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. That's an amazing grace. God should kill you. He should kill me. He should send every one of us to hell, and he sends his son for us. That's, That's grace. That's grace. And after celebrating the Lord's past grace, both in the deliverance from Egypt, in this revelation of himself at Sinai, instead of judgment, it turns to looking at present grace, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast, his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And So we have two pictures of the Lord here. First, the Lord is the pardoning and loving judge. The Lord is the pardoning and loving judge. Perhaps still with the incident of the golden calf in his mind, David now contemplates the Lord's forgiveness. And, and David is, again, because he's preaching to himself, and he's preaching to his people. And like I said, when you speak truth to yourself, you've got to get energetic about it because David is using these wonderful, wonderful images and metaphors. As high as the heavens are above the earth, it's pretty high. We talk about buildings being tall. That's nothing compared to how high the heavens are above the earth. As high as that is, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. See, if if you're not in awe, if you're not marveling at God's steadfast love, you don't get it. At least not very well. And so the cure, then, is to speak truth to yourself, to, to, to remind yourself about God's truth as you go through the amazing grace of God, what he should have done and what he did, what we deserved and what we get instead. That's how great. How great is God's steadfast love? It's that great. That's why in the New Testament, Paul can say, oh, that you would understand the breadth and the width and the depth and the height of the love of God which surpasses understanding. That's how great God's love is. And you've got to slow down and stop and think about it and unpack that and not just breeze over it. This is how you get your heart to respond in worship. And then we got another metaphor. First was height. Now, as far as the east is from the west. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure if you were to start, if you were to get like in a rocket ship and just head east, you could just sort of keep going indefinitely. You leave the planet behind. There's no east pole and west pole on our planet, right? So you can just pretty much keep heading east. Even if you keep yourself on this sphere, you can just keep heading east, right? You can just get in your airplane and just fly east, and you'll just keep flying east until you run out of gas. You'll never stop heading east. You'll never reach your destination, right? So how far is east from west? It's an infinite direction this way to an infinite direction that way. That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. (laughs) <laughs> if you're not marveling at God's grace, if you're not amazed by grace, something's wrong. But you've got to slow down. You can take this for granted, which is why David is recounting this stuff. Don't forget the Lord's benefits. Don't forget the good things the Lord does. And he starts unpacking them and speaking them and using these amazing metaphors to picture. It's not like God took your sins and just sort of put them over here where he could scold you about it again. They're gone. If if you've turned to the Lord in faith, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, your sins are gone. They're just out of here. They are removed in infinite direction that way, and you are moved in infinite direction that way. That's how far they are from you. He's the pardoning and loving judge. And next, the Lord is a forbearing and loving Father. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion for his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. There's a contrast set up here. He starts off, he says, the Lord knows we're weak. He knows we're frail. He knows we're finite. He knows we're dust. And so he shows compassion on us. You know, I don't expect my son, my daughter, to be able to do the things that I can do. I'm aware that they're children. I'm aware as an infant. And so I condescend and I'm patient. I hope I am with them. Some days harder than others. And, but if I'm a good father, I'm taking that into account. And I'm not requiring of Abner things that would be legitimate to require of a full-grown adult. How much more so does the Lord take that into consideration with us? He remembers were dust. He shows compassion to us. He's patient with us. Oh, his goal is to conform us to the image of his son. The target doesn't shift, but he is very patient with our stumbling, plotting attempts. He knows our frame. And then he goes on to further express this frame of dust. We're man. His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. Reminiscent of the language of Psalm 90. We're just, we're, we're, we're soap bubble here for a moment. Our life is but a vapor. Now look at that wonderful but that starts verse 17, this contrast. Contrast our frailty, our finitude, our feeble hold on life. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. We have another double infinite metaphor. From everlasting in this direction to everlasting going forward, his love is upon those who fear him. So you may be frail and you may be finite and you may be dust, but before the Lord created the heavens and the earth, he knew you. You think of of Bruce. Bruce's body gave out. Bruce has returned to dust. The steadfast love of the Lord has been and will always be on Bruce. World without end. Amen forever. What amazing grace that is. It starts to put things into perspective. You You can work really, really hard and get a really nice house and a really nice car and you can enjoy that for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and then it and you will return to dust. Or you can enjoy the steadfast love of the Lord that was upon you before you even knew him and enjoy it forever. The Lord is a pardoning and loving judge. The Lord is a forbearing and loving father. And then third, we get a description of describing partakers of grace. And here is the only bit where we see any conditionality in this psalm, but you see it a number of times. Because not everyone gets this grace, do they? Not everyone receives this wonderful pardon. Not everyone's sins are removed. Not everyone has steadfast love from eternity past and for eternity future placed upon them. So, who is it who receives this grace? Who is it who gets this love? Well, those who fear him, keep his covenant, and obey. I'm going to walk through that. I just want you to see it first. Verse 11. So great is his steadfast love towards the world? No. Those who fear him. Verse 13. The Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Now, we'll try to explain that. Don't be troubled by that. But I want you to see that that's clearly there. This is not some general, across the boards for everyone love and grace. The recipients are described specifically as those who fear him, those who keep his covenant, and those who obey him or who do his commandments. Now, this does not say that by meeting these qualifications, God will respond with love and grace. It simply says there's a one-to-one relationship. Wherever you find those who fear the Lord, wherever you find those who keep his covenant, wherever you find those who obey him, there you find those whom he is gracious to and those whom his steadfast love is upon. There's, there's nothing about causality or cause and effect here. There's simply identity. The same group that... Fears the Lord, the same group that keeps his covenant, the same group that obeys him, that is the group that also enjoys his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. So so this text is not saying, if you will go keep God's commandments, if you will go keep his covenant, then the Lord will respond with love and forgiveness and mercy. Rather, what he's saying is, the people who receive love and mercy are also the same people who keep his commandments, keep his covenant, and fear him. That's what he's saying. And this is what the Bible teaches elsewhere in 1 John 2, 3-4. This is a passage the Lord used to bring me to faith, or really rather to bring me to lostness so that I could be saved in the summer of 1999. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we are keeping his commandments, whoever says I know him but is not keeping his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's pretty black and white doesn't say here's how you get saved rather here's how you know you've received salvation it is your habit it is your practice to endeavor to keep the lord's commandments so don't, so don't trip up on this psalm 103 is not saying if you'll do these things then god will do these things rather the ones whom the lord does these things to are the same ones who do these things and that makes sense the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge there is no salvation that does not begin with a fear of the lord with the taking him seriously, with understanding his sin and his righteousness and his judgment, as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit would begin to convict the world. And keeping his covenant—what does that mean? Well, the new covenant is kept by believing in Jesus. Jesus says this explicitly in John six. What is the commandment of God? Well, to believe in the one whom He has sent. What is the condition of the new covenant? To turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust. That—that's the terms of the new covenant. The result of those terms is a transformed heart, a transformed inner being that results in good works and good fruit, which is why Psalm 103 can say, where you see these things, you know you're looking at those people who have received grace and mercy. It's not that your keeping of his commandments saves you, but the keeping of his commandments evidences you've been saved, evidences you've been mercied and forgiven. But there is no option for some third category of people who, well, I've I've, I've been forgiven, I just don't obey. And, And to those who try to pull that off, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, a grave warning, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, he does not say you'll go to heaven because you do the will of the Father. What he'll say is, if you don't do the will of the Father, you won't go to heaven. He doesn't say why, he just says, that's the chase. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And what's going on is Jesus is saying, for those who claim to have faith, the Lord will look to their lives to prove it, or he'll prove the contrary by their lives. You say you believed in me, and here's 20 years of your life where you bore thorns. You're not a fig tree you're not a fig tree if you're constantly bearing thorns. He's not saying, and I'll forgive you if you stop bearing thorns. Rather, I'll show you you're an unbeliever because you live out unbelief all day long. That, that's the point. I'm, I'm belaboring this because it's important. Psalm 103 does not say, keep his commandments and, and you'll have his love. Rather, those whom the Lord has forgiven, and those whom the Lord has placed his love upon, they are the same ones who fear him. They are the same ones who keep his covenant, and they're the same ones who do his commandments. Okay, moving forward, finally, a universal call to bless the Lord. And at this point, David is so pumped up, revved up, it's not enough for his soul to alone, praise the Lord. That's not good enough. He's got to call upon the entire corporate people of Israel. He's got to call upon the entire people of God. They need to bless the Lord too. That's not enough now. And the invitation is extended to a universal call to bless the Lord. The only fitting thing for the Lord is that everything praise him. And so we read the following lines. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you as angels, you as mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord O my soul. Now here, we move from contemplating the Lord's salvation and grace and mercy to contemplating his kingship. The first point, A, The Lord is a great and sovereign king over all. And that's how he lays it out. This is the ground from which the following inferences are made. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And I wish we could do a whole message on that. God's throne is above the throne of every earthly ruler. If there's any earthly rulers you're concerned about, worried about, I'm not fans of. It's okay. God's throne's above theirs. And there's demonic powers in heavenly places. God's throne is above theirs. He's established his throne over all. And that becomes the foundation for this invitation for all to worship him. The Lord is a mighty and great sovereign king over all, which brings us to point B. Therefore, may all his angels bless him, David's not satisfied with himself alone worshiping God. He's not satisfied with the people of God together worshiping. We've got to include the angels now. And he's calling upon them to do something they're already doing. Every time we see the angels in Scripture, they're covering their hands, their face, and their feet, and saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. But David's cheering them on anyway, because that's how excited now he's become. It's how passionate he's become. And then... You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. And now maybe we're talking about different categories of angels, different categories of spiritual beings. And that's not good enough. It's not good enough. Point C now just all his works. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Now, what is the word works? Well, it's everything. David might as well be saying tree, bless the Lord, pavement, bless the Lord. Martinsdale Church Building, bless the Lord. And if you read the Bible, they do, right? Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. Day into day pours forth speech. The trees of the field will, what will they do? Clap their hands for joy. All of God's creation, apart from us and some of the angels, gladly rejoice in him. And so you picture this, 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 volume of worship. It starts with one little person and expands out to the people of God and then the angels get incorporated and now every tree and every rock and every blade of grass and every distant star is joining in, praising the Lord. And in this exalted setting, David comes back around to remind us of one thing. He's still there praising God. This is ultimately a psalm revving him up. His point D, may I bless him. And so this ends at a pinnacle of praise and worship. And yet in that giant everything worship of God, there's David still there. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is how you encourage your heart to rejoice in the Lord. This is how you cultivate a true heart of worship. This is how you do spiritual medicine on a dull heart. And the Lord has left it for our instruction so that we could Tend to our hearts, that we could shepherd our hearts, and we could shepherd the hearts of one another. Let's turn our hearts now to the worship of the Lord through celebrating communion at His table. It's now a time for us to remember that a supreme sacrifice, just as Psalm 103 looks to the Lord's salvation, what we are about to do will do the same. This meal does not save anyone. But this meal images a salvation that we have received. Jesus says, all who come to him will never thirst, and all who believe in him will never hunger, in John 6. I'd like to call the ushers forward now at this time as we prepare for the Lord's table. This, you're, you're welcome to join in, even if you're not a member here, even if this is your first time joining us except the Apostle Paul does warn about eating and drinking in an unworthy fashion. Only if these symbols are true for you, if you are one who is already nourished by Christ, if you are one who is feeding on Christ, if you are one who has come to Christ, we would invite you to come to this table. And if not, we would encourage you to take Paul's warning seriously and soberly. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11... On the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. We are now going to take bread. Of thanks for the bread which symbolizes his body broken for us. Father, my feet had put me on a sinful path. A path that led straight to the grave, an open pit. And Father, I was delighted to walk that path. But you called me. You called me because you sent him to taste the grave in my stead. You caused my eyes to look Upon Him, upon Him hanging on the cross, and Lord, you use that to save. Me. Father, I am so grateful that you sent Him. There. So grateful that He gave Himself for us. And I just ask that you never let my feet get back on that path, even for a moment. Keep my eyes fixed on the cross. That's His precious name. I ask that. And when He had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup. We are now going to take the cup. your creation sings an anthem of praise to your name day into day pours out speech night into night knowledge the stars and the trees the birds the rocks and all of your handiwork bless your name Lord but only we only we the redeemed can sing the song of salvation only we can praise you for what you did for us in saving us Lord God and in Drinking this cup, we announce that salvation. We celebrate that salvation. We remember that salvation. Jesus' name, amen. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Beloved, you are dismissed.